Hey everybody, welcome to the very first episode of Poetry in Motion Cowboy Podcast. My name is Kai Reef and I'll be your host. With this being the first episode, I kind of want to let you guys know uh, what our goal is here and, and what the format's going to look like. Um, you can tell by the name that there's going to be some poetry involved. And, and so I'm hoping to introduce you guys to some cowboy poetry or give you a place to, to come and hear some good cowboy poetry. So the format, what it's going to look like, how we're going to lay it out. I'm going to pick a poem every week, either one that I've written or, or one that I really admire from somebody else. And whatever the topic of that poem is, whether it be dragging calves at a Brandon or riding bronchi colts or whatever it may be, we're going to go back and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, whatever the, the topic might be, we're going to just sit around and cuss and discuss that for a little while. And then we'll wrap up the podcast every week with with the poem. Kind of the purpose of, of what I'm hoping to accomplish here, one of them is just to make the miles go by faster. You know, as cowboys, we we know about having a lot of time to kill on our hands. I just recently got back from a trip to Pierce, Nebraska. I was judging a UBF bullfight up there. Just a quick side note, if you've never been to a freestyle bullfight, you are missing out. Um, if you've never been to one, you can pull it up on YouTube, Google it. You can find the Ultimate Bullfighters, the UBF, on Facebook. Um, they are an awesome, awesome thing. It's the exact same breed of Spanish fighting cattle that the matadors use in the Spanish bullfights, but it's a completely bloodless bullfight. You've got one bull, one bullfighter. They've got 60 seconds uh, judged on their aggression and control and, and some of the tricks they do, and they are just awesome. I love freestyle bullfighting. So if you've never gotten to see that, do yourself a favor. Find one close to you or, or pull it up on Facebook or YouTube and see that. But it was over 700 miles from my house in Texas to Pierce, Nebraska. And I drove straight up there on, on Friday. We judged the bullfight Friday night, got a little bit of sleep, drove back home Saturday morning. So I had a ton of time sitting behind the steering wheel looking out through the windshield. And, and so one of my hopes with this podcast is that while you guys are traveling, while you guys are, are putting the miles behind you, that it'll just feel like you've got a traveling partner sitting there in the front seat with you just telling stories and, and cussing and discussing and talking about different things. My other goal or hope with this is to give people who enjoy cowboy poetry as much as I do a place to tune in and come find some and, and hear about it, maybe maybe dig in a little deeper to some poems that they may have heard before um, to, to kind of unpack those and, and look at them a little deeper, but also to introduce people to cowboy poetry. I think cowboy poetry is a, is a great thing. We're going to get into that some today, um, why I feel so strongly about it, but it's not necessarily a mainstream kind of thing. There are definitely people walking around that have never heard any cowboy poetry, and so I'd love for this to be a place where you would get introduced to it. Cowboy poetry has been around for a long, long time. Um, it's hard to put a, a definitive date on when it got started, but a lot of the credit for it goes to the, the guys working the cattle drives back in the 1870s. So if you think about it, they had so much time. As they're traveling up the trail from, from Texas, headed to Kansas or wherever they might have been, punching a set of cows, they were definitely having to pay attention to their job. But once them cattle got trail broke and they're strung out there, there's a lot of time to sit around and think, and not only was there time to sit around and think, there was major events that were going on. They were dealing with floods when they came to rivers. They were dealing 
with cattle stampeding, um, especially when they first took off, when they first started out on the trail. That string of horses that they had cut out for them probably hadn't been rode in a while. There's broncs trying to get bucked off every morning. There was a lot of things that would stir up emotion and, and stir up words in them. And then on top of that, they needed something to pass the time. Usually when we're driving down the road, we reach up and we turn the radio on or, or something. These stories, these poems, and these songs that these guys came up with as, as they were on these cattle drives got passed around. And, and this one guy might write a verse to a song and then somebody else would write and it would grow. But the guys sitting around the fire of an evening, they would memorize these things or they would hear them enough times that then it give them something to sing to themselves while they're riding, uh, something to think about, something to help them pass the time. But most of those songs and poems are gone now because you got to think about the group of cowboys that were taking these cattle up the trail. Our, our public school system was not nearly what it is today. A lot of these cowboys going up the trail didn't know how to read or write. And that was why it was so important that this was an oral tradition. Um, you weren't going to just pick up a book of, of poems and hand it to somebody and then read them and, and memorize them. But as you're sitting around a fire of an evening, somebody could recite a poem and somebody else could learn it. And then it got passed down through time that way. But because not many of them got put on paper, a lot of the old songs and poems are gone now. The first book of cowboy poetry that I'm aware of that was published was published in 1907 there was a rancher from New Mexico his name was Jack Thorpe and, and Jack was still from from the old school of kind of the free range days where everybody's cattle was running together and um, when you went to gather they, they'd send representatives from each brand and they would go and gather sort off everybody's cattle but Thorpe saw barbed wire coming he saw fences starting to be stretched out. He saw posts going up, and he was worried that the invent of this barbed wire was going to put an end to the days of the cowboy. He was worried that as he began to break up the range and, and fence things off, that cowboys were not going to be needed anymore. And so this lifestyle that he loved, as he saw barbed wire coming, he was afraid that those days were coming to an end. Thorpe was kind of right and wrong in his in his estimation there because cowboy in these days with with our barbed wire with our fences the pastures have gotten smaller and we've we've changed some of the genetics of the cattle we've changed the way we feed them the way we care for them our our tack and our equipment has changed there's not many people riding an old center fire saddle anymore um, but he was wrong too because cowboys are never going to go away there's always going to be a place where a cow can get to that no machine can get to. The only means of transportation that's going to be able to take you to where that cow is, is a good ranch horse. And the only person that's going to be tough enough to ride that horse up there is going to be a cowboy. As long as there's still cattle, there's always going to be cowboys. Any land that, that seems valuable for anything other than grazing cattle on is quickly being eaten up. Um, I remember around the small towns where I grew up used to just be pastures and pastures and, and cattle and horses out there. Now they've been broken up into subdivisions. There's a huge shopping center in Rogers, Arkansas, sitting on kind of this hill um, where Albert Scott used to have his, his pasture. And there was a, an awesome, really kind of historic-looking barn that sat up on a hill. And um, 
now as you drive through there it's this big huge enormous shopping center it's all been paved it's it's all gone so it's actually pushing the cowboys into into that rough and remote country which the cowboys have always been there but now it's getting to a point where that's the only place they are and as it just goes to solidify it just sets in stone that there's always going to be a cowboy there because the places that the cowboys are being pushed to now are the exact places that nobody else wants that nobody else can make profitable the only people that can make that land worth anything are the cowboys that are willing to be out there all day all seasons no matter what the weather's doing looking for cattle so the cowboy is never going to go away but as Mr. Thorpe saw barbed wire coming, it scared him that his way of life was coming to an end. So he took some of his thoughts, he took what he was feeling, um, the, the fear and the worry that he had, the memories that he had, the good times, and he put them down on paper so that they could be shared and they could be passed down through generations. Something that strikes me as interesting, uh, the U.S. Agricultural Census in 2017 said that the average age of the primary ranch operators was 57 years old. So there was younger people and older people working the ranches, but the primary operator of the ranch was 57 years old. That was in 2017, so now in 2021, I would assume that age has actually probably gone up some more. It's definitely a changing culture and lifestyle and there's not that many young people stepping up to to fill the role. There's not that many young people that are willing to go through the time and, and the financial struggle that's involved in trying to build a ranch anymore. For that reason, I think cowboy poetry is as important now as it's ever been because it's a way for us to document and keep record of the old ways and of the old traditions. A great friend of mine, um, he lives in Oklahoma now, but he's from West Texas. His name's Don Horn. Don is a hero of mine. We will definitely have him on an episode one of these days where we'll interview him and, and talk to him. But as he tells stories about the way that he grew up, one of the cool stories that he tells his dad was managing the Turkey Track Ranch, and, and Don had an opportunity as a young kid to go and gather a set of, of full-grown horned Hereford steers and drive them from one side of the ranch to the other, which took a couple days because the ranch was big enough, and actually load them on a train car and see those steers shipped out. That's kind of stuff that, that I'm never going to get to experience in my life. But as people pass down stories, I still get to hear about it, talking to Don about the way they did things when he was a young man and they were going out with the wagon, the kind of horses that they rode, the the mindset and the mentality that they had about starting horses versus the way that we start horses today. A lot has changed. And all of those good old stories, the, the traditions, the moral code and the ethics that they had, that's going to go away if we don't pass it down from generation to generation. And cowboy poetry and, and cowboy songs as well. I, I keep saying cowboy poetry, but it, that includes, sure enough, cowboy songwriters you get guys in there like dave stamey and, and bren hill uh, through cowboy poetry and, and through cowboy song we keep a hold of those things and we pass them down to the next generation i think that more cowboy poetry is probably being published today than ever before 
I don't know if that's because there's there's more of it being written or if it's just so much easier um, to get things published and get them on print, uh, get them out on the internet and share things on Facebook or however. But there's a ton of cowboy poetry available to be to be read these days. But cowboy poetry is still and is always going to be an oral tradition. It's a it's an oral spoken way of sharing stories and memories. Now, if you don't have the opportunity to go sit down and have a conversation with Baxter Black or S. Omar Baker or whoever and to hear them recite these things and share these stories, the next best thing is obviously to pick up one of their books and to read it. But it's always going to be a spoken oral tradition. And, and one of the kind of culmination, the, the big thing in cowboy poetry every year is the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada. Uh, this January, the 24th through the 29th, will mark the 38th time that they've had the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering there in Elko. It is, it is an awesome time. Uh, the very best cowboy poets, singers, songwriters, they all converge on this little Nevada town to come together and to share stories and to perform. And you get to hear the emotion in their voice. You get to hear them explain things and share these stories and poems the the way that it feels in their heart it's such an awesome time it's definitely a dream and a goal of mine to be there and to get to perform that's definitely what we are are working towards um but today i want to just share with y'all a little bit about me um so that as we go forward in in future episodes you kind of know who it is you're talking to Talking about the cowboy poetry, my start in cowboy poetry did not come from hearing great cowboy poets and wanting to be like them. I think most people, when they start rodeoing or something, you know, used to see the PBRs, uh, you know, on TV and they'd sit around there and, and watch them and Chris Shivers and Justin McBride and guys like that. You know, there's little boys all over the country that'd be like, man, that's, that's who I want to be when I grow up. And I'm sure for a lot of poets or songwriters, either one, they would hear something that somebody had shared, and it would just stir a place in their heart. And they'd say, man, that, that is who and what I want to be when I grow up. But it didn't start that way for me. I started writing poetry when I was in high school. I can very distinctly remember sitting in my English class. I don't remember what the assignment was that our teacher had given us, but I do know that it was not to write a poem about the fact that your girlfriend had broke up with you and broke your heart. But that's where I went with it. So my start in poetry, if you will, sounded a lot less like Waddy Mitchell and a lot more like some teenage girl's diary. But there were thoughts and emotions that as a teenage boy I was having and feeling, and I didn't know how to share them with anybody. My buddies that were around me, you know, by that point we were already rodeoing, we were already doing some things, um, this group of tough guys that was trying to show how cool they were and how strong they were, it was not a place that, that you felt comfortable being vulnerable. Even with my best friends, there was not a place where I could say, man, this thing makes me really sad. This thing hurts my heart. I'm scared of this. I'm anxious about this. So it just came out on paper, the thoughts and emotions that I didn't know how to explain to people ended up coming out on paper. In the beginning, these things, they were very personal. Um, 
like I said, it was it was things that I didn't know how to explain to people. So I would just take a pen and I would sit and I would write these things down. And I had no desire to share them with with anyone else. It was like somebody that sitting around going through the process of making moonshine, but it's all just for their personal consumption. They don't have any desire to share it with anybody. That was the way I was. I had notebooks full of things that I had written, and nobody even knew about it. But at the time, things were kind of getting a little bit hectic in my personal life and some of the things that were going on, and, and I was living with my sister just a side note about my sister, she's an absolute genius and it infuriates me that she is smarter and more intellectual than I am, but she is also a bookworm. She reads and reads and reads all the time. She will disappear for days on end if she finds a good book that she really gets into. But she was someone that I felt confident sharing the things that I had written with. For one, because she already knew where I was at inside emotionally she knew what I was going through so there was not going to be any judgment there from her I knew that but also she she had enough intelligence uh, she was she had read enough stuff that I felt she was a good judge of of the not only the content but the way and the style and the form that it was written in so I shared some of it with her and, and she was super encouraging um where I had feared that people would be judgmental as I began to share stuff, she was super encouraging. And she is actually the one that told me that I should keep writing and that I should begin to share it with people. And if you've ever had a vulnerable moment where you try to share uh, something that you're feeling inside with somebody, that can be frightening. It can be really scary. But with her encouragement, her backing me up, her support, um, I began to do it a little bit and I felt like the feelings I put into my poems were things that no one else felt or struggled with. One of the big obstacles that I had to overcome in sharing my poetry was I was kind of ashamed of the things that I felt because I, I thought I'm the only person that struggles with this. Like I'm having a moment of weakness here in my heart. I'm not being courageous. and I feel weak right now. And especially for a young man that was that was out doing the things that I was doing that was a that was a hard thing for me to share with somebody because I look at my friends and they were pretending to be tough just the same way that I was pretending to be tough but I was naive enough at the time to believe to believe their fakeness to believe that they really were that tough and that I was the only one that was having these struggles that I was the only one going through any hard times but I was amazed as I began to share how many people said I felt that same way? I just didn't know how to put it into words. It was absolutely amazing to me the number of times that I would share a poem with somebody. I'd have a couple of my friends over and we'd be talking or something. They'd ask me if I'd written anything lately and I'd say, yeah, I got a new one. And so I would go get in it and as I, I would read it or I would recite it to them, they'd say, man, I, I have felt that exact same way. I've struggled with that exact same thing. I just never knew how to put it into words. I just never knew how to explain to somebody the way that I felt. And a piece of scripture from the Bible that, that it really brought home for me was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And the beginning of that scripture says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And that was such a huge weight off of my shoulders because I felt like I was inferior. I felt like I was weak because I was the only one struggling with these things. 
But as I read this scripture that no temptation has overtaken me except what's common to mankind, I hate that you're having struggles, but man, it makes me feel so much better that I'm not the only one that's going through these things. And that as I talk about it, you're going to understand because you've been there too. And maybe you've got some advice for me. Maybe you can help me get through it. Or if nothing else, we can lean on each other because we're in the same place. Another another piece of scripture that comes up is Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17. And it says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another one of the great things about poetry in general but cowboy poetry specifically is that cowboy poetry gives us a chance to explore some parts of our hearts that we usually wouldn't things that normally wouldn't get brought up in conversation between two cowboys it gets brought up as as we get into cowboy poetry especially you read the the works of somebody like jb allen and um, he's got a great poem uh, about mending the wounds that crack and bleed and, and just taking care of business emotionally and spiritually. And, and it's so awesome when these things come together and, and the topic of conversation opens up where two, it can be men or women or children or whoever, but with me being a guy, it always comes up in my mind as two guys, two big, strong cowboys coming together and being able to have a real emotional conversation about something and find out that they've got a support system where they didn't know they had it before. Find out that their hero, this guy that they idolize, that, that they think is Superman, that he's got weaknesses too. And then you guys can sharpen each other and you can build and, and you can be you can be built up and encouraged and edified through that. One of the differences that I see between cowboy poetry and, and just your regular run-of-the-mill poetry just remember as I started I, I had I didn't have a desire to be a cowboy poet I was just writing things down and I was actually more of a fan of Emily Dickinson than I was of of cowboy poetry but these just emotional sappy stories that you hear they don't connect with us because they're not tied into real life the beautiful thing about cowboy poetry is that Guys are just telling stories about where they've been and, and how it's affected them. When they tell a story about getting bucked off a colt and having to walk back home, you understand that. When they tell a story about their best horse dying and how much it broke their heart, you understand that because you've been there and you've walked in it. And even if you're not a cowboy, cowboy poetry does such a great job of explaining feelings that even if you haven't ever walked in their shoes, you feel like you have and it makes sense to you and it understands so through that cowboy poetry actually has the ability to bring some healing where it's needed when when you are just broken about something cowboy poetry actually does have the power and the ability to remind you that other people have gone where you're at other people have gone through the same things that you're going through and they survived, and they made it, and, and life is good again. It reminds you to seek out the joy and the beauty in the world. And that, that's a healing, that's a good thing that comes from cowboy poetry. Like I said, my poems, personally, didn't start off as cowboy. I was going through the typical teenage boy stuff. Um, our football team was terrible. Uh, we got beat all the time. And that was super frustrating for me. So we had to deal with some of that. I was dealing with the girlfriend thing. Had some things going on at home that I was dealing with. 
And those were the emotions that I was unloading off of myself onto paper. So my poems didn't start off as cowboy. But as I continued to write, I wrote about my life. Pretty much everything I wrote for the first however many years was nonfiction. It was true stories about what was going on in my life. And, and so as I wrote about my life, it couldn't help but become cowboy because I was cowboy. At the time, I was, I was starting Colts. Anytime an opportunity came up to day work, we were going to day work. I've got to share this story with you real quick, a quick side note on the day work thing. So I was, I think, a sophomore in high school. We were living in northeast Oklahoma, and, and so we're surrounded by the the tribal lands. All the, the different tribes had their own piece of land where they were doing things. Well, one of the tribes had called, and, and they had a ranch there that the tribe owned, and they had called and said that they had gathered their cows, and there was a handful of cows that had evaded the gather. So this was right up my alley, and I had a big sorrel horse that we'd gotten off of the racetrack and he could mortally fly and so we went to go catch a set of cows on him one of the tribal leaders had gone with us and he's mounted on this little black mare i can't even remember what he called her but we had uh, me and the, the tribal leader and my stepdad at the time and, and we go we take a couple cur dogs and we go and we're trying to catch these cows and there's some big old waspy limousine looking things and they kept getting in the brush, and so we'd send the dogs in. When the dogs brought them out of the brush, we'd rope them and get them tied down. Well, at one point, I'm sitting along the edge of the brush waiting on, on the dogs to bring one out so that we can go to her. And, and this guy that works for the tribe, he's come, and he's rode up the other side, kind of parallel to, to where I'm at. And about that time, this big red limousine cow comes smoking out of there, and she catches his horse right in the rib cage, right behind his leg and just rolls his horse up well i'm probably a hundred yards away from him because like i said we were sitting on opposite sides but as that cow rolls him up she is stomping all over his horse and she slows down for just a minute to make sure that she gets him hooked and, and make sure she doesn't leave any of his skin unmarked by hooves or or her head as we're flying across there i can hear him yell because he's still pinned down underneath his mare as she's laying on her side and she's starting to thrash, I can hear him yelling for somebody to come help him. And my stepdad at the time tells him just lay still, be quiet for a minute, because he slowed that cow down enough that we could get to her. That is the kind of, of day work that we were going and doing. I don't know if it was the most professional. Um, I don't know if it always fell in line with cowboy morals and ethics, but it was a ton of fun. So it's starting Colts, day working, I'd gotten a job galloping racehorses. Um, I, as much as I love cowboying, I love racehorses, I think, just as much. I was 14 or 15 there. We'd moved to Oklahoma and just by God's grace fell in uh, with a guy named Shad Seaton. Uh, Shad rode saddle broncs and trained racehorses, galloped a lot of racehorses. He kind of taught me that and got me started, got to where that was how I was making a living i was going and galloping horses in the morning before school and then coming back after school and getting my colts rode and at the same time shad was helping me get started uh, riding bronx i'll never forget the day I, I come home and, and somebody knocks on the door and shad and he walks in he just throws a bronx saddle in the floor and he's not a super emotional guy not a a lovey kind of guy so there wasn't any words exchanged really he just threw a bronc saddle down there in the floor and, and kind of told me I better figure out what to do with it. 
Uh, but so I was riding the Saddle Bronx. We were going rodeoing a little bit. I'd also been fighting bulls. Um, I absolutely loved, had a passion for fighting bulls, both cowboy protection and and freestyle. So we were going to a lot of bull ridings, going to a lot of, of freestyle bull fights, and it couldn't it couldn't help but pour over into my riding because that's just the the life that I was living. It was something new every day, but it always always revolved around either cowboying or racehorses or rodeo. The only other job that I had at that time, I took a one summer hiatus, if you will, and actually got a job working, leading a dude string. And I just got to rescue myself here for a minute before anybody makes fun of me for leading a dude string. If Dave Stamey can write a song about leading a dude string, I can write poems about him. And he's famous, so if you're going to make fun of me, you got to make fun of him too. But it was actually the perfect job for me. We were working at a Christian summer camp, a, a kind of a, a church camp there, and I still had people sending me colts that I was starting. We were putting a lot of miles on horses every day, leading these trail rides. And so people were paying me to ride their colts, but then I was also getting paid to lead these trail rides. So we got this whole string of, of dude string horses, old just, you know, hammer-headed, plod along. One of them stick their nose in the other one's tail and, and just go along. And I didn't have to worry about them too much, so it gave me some freedom to ride the colts that I was riding. But there was no real facilities at this place. There was just one kind of catch pin-looking thing, um, and we'd bring the horses in there every morning, catch them, saddle them. But these colts that I was starting... There was no round pin, no arena. It was just rocks and up and down and, and nasty. So my friend that was working with me, Jonesy, what we would do, Jonesy would snub these colts off when I would get them, and I would get on them when there was no campers there, and we would just take off, and there was 1,300 acres there. And like I said, it's all rocks up and down, back in the trees, nasty. So we would go back through there, and we would ride these colts until they got to going good, and then he would give me the lead rope back, and I would ride them from where we were at back to the barn just with a halter and lead rope. And usually a trip or two like that, and, and they're going pretty good. And then I was able to start taking them on the trail rides. But this one this one weekend, there was nobody there. I'd gotten in this little bay filly, and we are trying to get her started. And she was just a vicious, violent little creature. And so Jonesy gets her snubbed off, and I get on her, and we take off. And, and it's just continual bucking rearing up spooking jumping trying to attack the snub horse for probably an hour we get out there a ways and she finally starts to kind of settle in she had worn herself out and so we turn around and we're heading back but this time i told jonesy i said don't don't give me the lead rope i don't think it's all out over yet you go ahead and hold on to her and we'll just go back to the pins and we'll try her again tomorrow jonesy in all of his infinite wisdom decides that the creek that runs through camp there he wants to see how much the creek has risen due to all the rain that we've been having i'm really helpless at this point to tell him no i don't want to like i can't say this is a terrible idea because i have no reins no lead rope no nothing i'm just sitting on the back of this horse holding on to my saddle horn and a night latch he is driving so we take off, and as we're coming back, we take a detour, and we go to ride through the, or we ride down to the creek, and, and the barn is just across the creek from where we were at. So 
in again all of his infinite wisdom he says well we'll just cross the creek the barn's right here he's riding this little sorrel horse that he called switchblade and, and switchblade was not cut out to be a snub horse it was not his calling in life he was a heel horse he was pretty cool he was a good heel horse but not necessarily cut out to be a snub horse so we take off we're trying to cross this creek of course old bay is sold up she does not want to go in there because the water is high and it is running we kind of get her drug and pushed and spooked off into the water and as we're in the middle of this creek bay blows up again and is trying to buck me off trying to kill jonesy and switchblade that part of the country there's a lot of big chunks of limestone and underneath the water in this creek was a big chunk of limestone and of course switchblade has got shoes on all around like I, I warned y'all that this was a bad idea so you're just gonna have to bear with me as we get through it but when switchblade hits one of those big pieces of limestone and bay blows up to go to buck switchblade tries his hardest to lean against her to keep everything upright and all four feet go out from underneath of him when his shoes hit that slick wet limestone all four feet go out from underneath of him somehow as jonesy is falling off as he goes underwater somehow he manages to get the lead rope half hitched around his saddle horn as switchblade is trying to get up back to his feet he cannot find any traction on the limestone the only place he finds traction is on top of jonesy so now jonesy is between switchblade and the limestone switchblade is using jonesy for traction Bay's head is still tied to the saddle horn. The saddle horn is underwater, which means Bay's head is underwater, which is really, really increasing her level of panic. Once they both get to their feet, I'm reaching up and I'm trying to get the lead rope unhalf hitched from the saddle horn because at this point I'm feeling that I would be a lot safer on my own. But every time my hand goes past Bay's head to reach for for Jonesy's saddle horn, which Jonesy is still back in the water, and at this point me and Switchblade and Bay have made it to the opposite bank. Every time I reach past her eye to grab the lead rope, she bogs her head and goes to bucking again. So I just finally admit that I'm just going to have to sit there and see what happens. When Bay finally quits bucking, we are at a dead runoff. Switchblade is running as fast as he can, Bay is running as fast as she can, and I am helpless to do anything. And I'm just sitting there. And about that time, we come to a tree, switchblade goes left, bay goes right, we split the tree, and they crash. As the lead rope wraps around the tree, it yanks them together on the back side of it, and they hit heads, and both of them go down. I am trapped underneath this mare now. I've got two horses that are only semi-conscious. Jonesy finally makes it up out of the creek and comes to me. And as I'm laying there wanting to cause him bodily harm, wanting to do physical violence to him in typical team roper fashion, instead of checking to see if I'm even still alive, he begins to gripe about the fact that the water was cold and he couldn't swim. So, as much as you might think that leading a dude string is not a cowboy way to make a living, any job that you give a cowboy is going to quickly turn into a cowboy job because it is a cowboy that is doing it. 
But with all these stories, with these kind of experiences, with these things that I was going to, my life's experiences flooded over into my poems. There's actually a poem about that story about Jonesy trying to kill me. My goal is, with every episode of Poetry in Motion Cowboy Podcast, is to share some of these poems with you. For the most part, it'll be poems that I wrote, but there's definitely some other poets that I really admire and I really look up to them that wrote the kind of things that when I read it, I say, man, I wish I wish I had wrote that. So I'll probably share some from, from other poets as well, but most of them will be mine. And As we've talked about the emotion that goes in to cowboy poetry, the poem I want to share with you today is one that I wrote, and it's titled Cowboy Emotion. This is one of my favorites. It's my wife's favorite. It's one, if I get an opportunity to go and recite poetry somewhere, it's usually the one that I do. It's a work of fiction, but the characters are people we've all met and known. So as you listen to this, think about the the man that's that's writing it and think about his wife who's standing there and think about the man that they're describing because I would, I'm fairly confident that people you have met, people you have known, will come to your mind as you hear this. So I want to share with you this poem titled Cowboy Emotion. We were at the Cross H. Brandon. My new bride had tagged along. I noticed a look on her face and asked her what was wrong. That old man, she said. He hadn't smiled or frowned all day. He must have no emotion to go through life that way. Well, I asked her definition of emotion, and after much debate, we agreed in emotions of feeling. It's a glimpse of your mental state. Well, I smiled a little as I worded my reply, and I came to that old man's defense. Oh, he's got feelings, strong and true, though to you they may not make sense. Because he knows the feeling of a nylon rope when it stretches that last little bit, when it's tied hard to his saddle horn and cow hits the end of it. He knows the feel of a bridle rein, the first time a colt tries to give. And he knows the feel of an early calf's breath as he struggles to find air and live. Uh, he knows the feel of a tree branch when it catches the corner of your eye, when you're focused on brush popping and don't see it riding by. He knows the feel of a swell forked saddle on a bronc with a lot of drop. In his old bones he feels the difference in a sunfish and crow hop. He knows the feel of rope burns, sunburns, and frostbite. He knows the feel of a dark early morning and a late, late hazy night. And his face is like old leather. It's dry and cracked and stiff. That leather won't bend much to let him smile. But if, if you look real closely at the corner of his eye, when his boy ropes two feet and drags another calf by, you'll see his old eyes wrinkled like a colt's mouth holding a bit. With all the history written on his face, that's all the emotion that'll fit. But it's a glimpse into his heart, feelings we may never understand. But it's an outpouring of love when he says that boy is making a hand. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I want to encourage you guys get out and read or listen to some cowboy poetry. And until next time, once you guys remember, I love you, but Jesus loves you more.